It's the 3rd of July, 2020. This is the Room Now podcast, and hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This week, good news for gout, some scary news for rituximab. Things are looking up for cytokine therapy and COVID, and it's Independence Day. We should all be independent. It's the only way to live. Let's start with a Twitter poll I did this week. I was involved in a discussion with a number of learned colleagues about lupus nephritis and how we treat it, how we manage it. Do we do biopsies was the question. I said I don't think a lot of practicing rheumatologists do routine uh, kidney biopsies in people getting um, treatment for lupus nephritis. My academic um, friends, uh, that includes me now, I changed back to UT Southwestern where I'm an academic now, and, um, but most of them said, yes, we all get biopsies. So I did a Twitter poll, and uh, over three days, 194 responses, presumably from learned rheumatology colleagues on Twitter. Uh, and here's the vote. The question was, if you treat SLE patients, do you get a renal biopsy before starting lupus nephritis therapy? 10% said yes. 53%, I'm sorry, 10% said no. 53% said yes. Looks like I was wrong. And 33 or 35% said it depends. It's kind of a bailout answer, don't you think? I think what this really means, and the question is, what do the 35% depends mean? Is that depends? Yes, I do it. Depends? No, I don't do it. I think it means that 10% say definitively no, uh, unless something else comes up. Um, half or more say definitively yes, unless something else sways me otherwise. And then the other 35% are saying, it depends. I don't want to make a decision now. I'm kind of slow. Um, not like the other guys. I need time and data. Well, what, you know, who needs time and data besides the government? You know, sometimes we have to make decisions here. So uh, I think this is going to be a big issue because if you look at the uh, drug development in lupus right now, it seems like the best trials that are going to maybe succeed and maybe get a drug to market, new drugs to market for lupus, are the ones that are targeting lupus nephritis as opposed to treating lupus globally with an SRI4 outcome, looking at lupus nephritis outcomes. And then if that's the indication, well, you need a biopsy to, do, um, to use those therapies. These lupus nephritis studies actually have all relied on uh, a biopsy. There's um, some data about influenza vaccination that you should probably know about. This is a, a rare, rare risk of subdeltoid bursitis after you take an influenza vaccination. Never heard of it, never seen it, but you know what? It's statistically significant, but it's clinically meaningless, but it's still important. I guess 3 million people getting the influenza vaccine, the attributable risks, attributable risks was almost eight additional bursitis cases per 1 million people vaccinated. Really, really low. But, you know, this is the kind of stuff that leads to reluctance to receive vaccines. Um, there's another study that came out from a British uh, clinical practice research database uh, registry looking at vaccination for the pneumonia vaccines. Um, and it found that overall uh, in their data set of 21,000 plus RA patients, 38% had received the pneumonia vaccine. It was more likely 44% if you were elderly, a little more likely in women. Um, and really, you know, only a third of people starting a new conventional DMARD 
would actually get a pneumonia vaccine, um, maybe a little more if, it's your, if you're older. These vaccine issues are kind of important in the time of COVID, when right now everyone's waiting for a vaccine, but the whole issue here is, one, is it going to work? How successful is it going to be? Is it going to be like influenza or even better vaccines? Or is it going to be like pneumonia, pneumonia vaccine, which is actually not quite as good as influenza? Um, and will people use it? And what's going to be your role as a rheumatologist in making sure people get this? This is all going to be important. We're going to talk about this in the months to come. Uh, this week, a federal appeals a court upheld uh, a ruling that... Um, um, was a patent dispute between Amgen over Embrel and the Embrel's biosimilar made by Novartis or Sandoz called Arelzi. There was a patent dispute here and it upheld Amgen's uh, patent issues where the drug is protected until like 2024 or something like that, which is going to delay the availability of Arelzi, the biosimilar free Tanercept, until that time. Again, a federal appeals court upheld this. As soon as I published this, I got like three emails from people who are in the business of making sure this happens or doesn't happen. I'm getting kind of tired of legal issues with biosimilars, delaying the availability of biosimilars. You know, it's kind of a, no a bit of nonsense. I thought we developed these to save money. I don't think we're using them and I don't think we're saving much money and we're waiting until patent issues expire. Shame on the people that are doing this. Um, so what else? Uh, here's a study about um, the most serious infections that you might see in systemic sclerosis. Now, there's so much to worry about with systemic sclerosis. It's hard to think of, you know, serious systemic infections being a big issue. Well, this is a, a very large uh, study of 61,000 systemic sclerosis patients hospitalized between 1993 and 2016 to look at how many of them had serious infections. Um, the most common of these was, um, was what? Uh, sepsis and pneumonia. Pneumonia is 45%, sepsis 32%. No, actually, it's not quite that. It's something, yeah, yeah, 45% pneumonia, sepsis 32%, skin and soft tissue infection almost 20%. Uh, and again, it's sort of scary. The interesting thing here is that again sepsis and pneumonia are at the top of the lips list and that's something to worry about uh while um their hospital stays and their more infectious mortality rate has gone down over time death from infection was uh, went from 10 percent down to eight percent uh hospital charges went up during this period so this is sort of a, a serious minor issue that's in the background of managing systemic sclerosis and it's really not minor it's big time a very interesting study appeared this week. Um, I think this was uh, science and translational reports, something like that, about uh, the use of a genetic probability tool to predict um, the, the diagnosis and basically patients with early rheumatoid disease or inflammatory arthritis. They looked at three different large cohorts, 1,200 patients from an eMERGE cohort. This is sort of an online available cohort of patients, 245 patients from the partners uh, cohort in Boston, and another 243 patients with an early undifferentiated inflammatory arthritis. Um, it turns out when they use this genetic probability tool, using the, what we know about the genetics of RA, and applying that to people um, who may be at risk, that um, genetic profiling could 
increase the odds of developing a right diagnosis. So the area then under the curb was um, significantly high, um, 70 to 85 percent um, uh, in, in those three cohorts. Um, they were a likely diagnosis was going to be made in 64 percent of cases and an unlikely or rule out diagnosis was correctly made in 45 percent of the patients. Again, this is sort of big data meets genetic profiling, and the question is, could this be used in the future to more accurately diagnose people in clinical practice? I think it's a long ways off at this point. I think it's encouraging that we're going this route. Yes, um, you know, the bean counters and the geeks are working against you clinicians. They're gonna put you right out of business by doing it all on the computer. Um, and I'm being facetious, of course, uh, and I, I think there's always gonna be a role for the clinician and uh, uh, clinical acumen in making these diagnoses, but sometimes it's not so easy. And having a genetic likelihood, a probability score, if you will, might make for more accurate diagnoses, earlier diagnoses, um, make you a little more confident in the therapies you use. Uh, I saw an interesting report in J-Room this week that I, I really wasn't aware of, and I don't know if you're aware of this as well, but it's rituximab-associated autoimmune disease flares. Um, I give a lot of rituximab for um, vasculitis, and uh, I haven't really seen flares from using rituximab. In this particular cohort of 185 patients, there were seven cases of what was called a rituximab flare. Um, and interestingly, all seven of, them, seven of these cases occurred when rituximab was used for type 2 mixed cryoglobulinemic vasculitis. So these flares occurred a median of eight days after their last rituximab dose. They manifest as acute renal insufficiency, purpura, myocarditis, and GI involvement. Um, again, these people were really quite sick. Um, so who was more likely to get this were people who did have renal disease. Obviously, the type 2 mixed cryoglobulinemic vasculitis, people who had evidence of B-cell proliferation, higher cryoglobulin levels, the highest levels were more likely to be associated with this, and low C4 levels. The bad news was, again, this rare event, half of them died. And that's kind of shocking and may, may be worth noting. Um, biopsies of kidneys in these patients showed that there was a immune complex deposition and basically glomerular obstruction by the cryoglobulins that led to this renal demise in this, in this cohort. Sort of a scary story. Another scary story I think comes from uh, my buddy Hendrik Schulz Koops, who reported and his colleagues reported on two patients with rheumatoid arthritis who had received rituximab and died of COVID pneumonia. Now, we certainly know that our patients are not immune to COVID, although we're seeing less COVID in them. And, um, and we're not, we've seen patients admitted to the hospital and even deaths on all the drugs that are ours and supposedly even being used for the management of COVID. Um, I had a report out um, a month or more ago that theoretically B-cell emission might be a good thing in COVID. Well, this story of two cases um, says not. Um, in, the, in these two cases, what happened was one who had multiple comorbidities, COPD, hypertension, osteoporosis, had received rituximab two weeks before developing COVID uh, and then died. Um, and then another um, uh, patient uh, had received it six months before, also had a comorbidity or two, 
Um, and both of them had normal IgG levels, but died as a result of COVID. So um, something to take, take note of. Um, another report about COVID was that there is another report about multiple antiphospholipid antibodies being associated with COVID. Um, and this looked at 66 critically ill COVID patients and th compared them to 13 non-critically ill. The whole thing about these COVID reports is low numbers and suspect comparator groups. But nonetheless, that the antiphospholipid antibodies were more likely in those who were critically ill, half of them. Um, and they may only be present for about a month or, or six weeks and then go away. The problem is that their presence was associated with a higher risk of thrombotic events or the antiphospholipid syndrome. And again, it is these sort of hematologic um, uh, uh, microthrombi uh, manifestations which can complicate COVID. Uh, another report from COVID comes from Hospital for Special Surgery where they reported on 11 patients treated with anakinra. Um, and timing was everything in this particular report. Seven of the 11 received their anakinra really within the first 36 hours of presentation to the hospital. None of them required ventilation um, and, um, and were discharged. The other four um, got their anakinra after four days uh, and were more likely to have uh, progressive respiratory symptoms and require mechanical ventilation. Of those four, one died. So uh, all these people were relatively sick. They were SARS-CoV-2 positive. They had fever, ferritin's greater than 1,000, and they had evidence of resp impending respiratory failure. Um, and that's one of the reasons why anakinra was used in these particular patients. So again, I think a lot of the, the big issue with um, use of anti-cytokine therapy and many of the drugs that are ours being used in COVID is timing. Timing is everything. And this, I think, speaks to maybe the right way to use anakinra at least. Speaking of anti-cytokine therapy, another interesting report appears about tocilizumab uh, benefiting people with COVID-19 pneumonia. This was a study of like 545 patients or so who, um, who were sick, and 179 of them received tocilizumab, 365 did not. The ones who received tocilizumab were less likely to require mechanical ventilation, and they were going to have less death, 7% versus 20%. Um, interestingly, although they seem to do better, the ones on tocilizumab had more infections, 13% uh, versus 14, 13% versus 4% on TOSI versus not on TOSI. And the infections weren't mild infections. There were cases of sepsis, pneumonia. There were some UTIs, PJP, pneumonia, hep B uh, reactivation, and, and, and herpes simplex. So uh, that may be the downside of using anti-cytokine therapy. New England Journal this past week uh, again featured this new syndrome of multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, MISC. I think I previously called this PMIC in other reports that we've done. Um, Eric Topol had a nice sort of simple tweet on Twitter basically giving you the highlights of this. It's a nice read if you want to understand the, the syndrome. But unlike Kawasaki's, the kids affected by this tend to be older, 10 years of age and up. Um, they have fever like Kawasaki's that more likely to affect African-Americans, um, uh, Asian populations and Hispanics. 
and the cardiac manifestations, including aneurysms, appear in 20 to 40, sorry, sorry 10 to 20 percent of patients. And the interesting thing is it's not an initial manifestation of COVID. It's a late manifestation of COVID occurring two to four weeks into their initial diagnosis and management. So is this a late stage hyperinflammatory state? Not that uh, different from the cytokine storm syndrome. Um, these people have high LDHs, very high ferritins, high BNPs and D-dimers. Um, they can be sick. Uh, thankfully, only 2 to 4% have died in the thousands of patients that have been thus far reported. Also unclear is how they should be treated, although they're being treated aggressively with cytokine therapy. We're going to wrap up with two reports about gout, a simple one about coexistent gout and rheumatoid arthritis. The VA, RA registry, VARA, 2,000 patients being followed amongst their patients. They had 17% who have elevated uh, uric acid levels, hyperuricemia. And in that 2,000 population of RA patients, 6.1% were also diagnosed as having gout. Turns out these patients with hyperuricemia and gout had a higher rate of cardiovascular events, and that's worth noting. I think it's important because I've always taught you can't have gout and can't have RA. These are like, you can't have them together because it's a great teaching point. If you're not sure it's gout or RA clinically, get a rheumatoid factor and uric acid, and that takes care of the vast majority. But we know, managing so many people with gout and RA, that there are some crossover patients, and this gives you a nice good number to, to hang on to. Lastly, we missed it in May because we were so busy covering COVID in May. The ACR 2020 Gout Management Guidelines came out. It's probably worth taking a look at. We give you the highlights in our report today on the website. Um, first and foremost in these guidelines, there's 42 of them, by the way, uh, 16 have strong evidence uh, and then there's strong recommendations, as, but then the vast majority of them are not strong. There's a lot of expert opinion in here. But they make a big thing about allopurinol being first-line therapy for people who need urate-lowering therapy. They make a big thing about the evidence favoring treat-to-target in the management of gout. Um, they expand the use of allopurinol, um, and you no longer has to be people who have repeated attacks. Now it could be people during their first attack or maybe after one or two attacks, or two, two attacks, if you should you start allopurinol if they have a severe chronic kidney disease, stage two, three, or higher, or stage three or higher is what they said, um, market hyperuricemia, urate levels greater than nine, or a prior evidence of uh, kidney stones would be reason to uh, use allopurinol really automatically and early. And lastly, there was, um, well, they make a big case for uh, prophylaxis uh, when you're starting your rate-loading therapy, not just for three months, but really for up to six months, and then continuing to monitor them thereafter. And then they um, make a big thing about the genetic testing that you would normally do for Han Chinese populations, um, Korean Thai, but they also include African Americans in that group. And I think that that was a surprising new thing. That's a conditional recommendation, by the way. Anyway, that's it for this week on the podcast. Go to the website, check out these citations and others. Hope you're going to have a good holiday next week. Room Now will be giving you the best of as we're going to be on vacation, but we'll put up good content to watch uh, and we'll return the week following um, on the network. Bye.